don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... That's what she said. Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 38. And today we were talking about Fight Club from 1999, directed by David Fincher. Uh, who hasn't had a movie in a while since Gone Girl, but he's apparently doing a new one. That I think it was like written by his dad, I think is what I read. Anyway. Father Fincher coming up with a screenplay. <laughs> Daddy Fincher. Uh, so Fight Club, a movie that I think everyone has seen at some point, especially if you were ever a teenage bully, you, you sort of get introduced to this film. I, I remember seeing it and it being like a, a pretty big deal among the you know, the cool kids of my middle Dude, school you seen, and high school. you seen Fight Club? You seen Fight Club, man? It's, it's so good. It's fucked up. Uh, and, and even beyond that, because, you know, this is based on the novel by uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Palahniuk. I always, I, we discussed this on the last episode. I, I always say Palahniuk. Palahniuk. Oh, that's what we'll say. Palahniuk. Uh, He's my pal in a nook. Yeah. So based on the novel by <laughs> Chuck Palahniuk, uh, which I read in high school, but I don't, remember a whole lot about except for the ending being different between it and the film but uh palinuk is one of those authors that all the sort of cool kids like emo kids in my school that didn't really read much would read all of his novels and always like recommend them to anyone that would listen and they'd be like oh man this book's so fucked up you need it and that was kind of the reputation he got so he the highest up. compliment you can pay a movie or a book <laughs> when you're 15 is it's so fucked up. Fucked up, man. I have no idea what's going on. It's kind of like the Donnie Darko effect of like, you don't know if it's really meaningful or not, but you're like, something's going on. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was my that's my sort of background with this film and with uh, this whole sort of universe that Palinut created. I had a I had a very similar experience with Fight Club. It was like I read like The Catcher in the Rye and Fight Club in high school. You, you know? had the angsty teenage boy starter kit. Yeah, and I didn't read the, the the emo kids were reading The Perks of Being a Wallflower and I didn't read that until I was in college and of course that's a fantastic book. Uh, yeah. but I wish I would have been cool enough to read that one in high school instead of fight club <laughs> uh, so. I, I i honestly i like fight club the book i like a couple of palinuk's books uh, but he's just so uh he turns them out now i can't keep up with him yeah and he's got he's got his sort of niche i think that he's pretty comfortable in and he's good at it so it's kind of like stephen king but for the sort of like i don't even know how to describe them grungy young people to mid thirties people who were into I, these really wild concepts. Yeah. 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 I, th I remember having a, a conversation with a, a professor we both know who, who taught the adolescent literature class, uh, Dr. Donovan. And we were talking about authors as, uh, bridges like uh, adolescent authors as their main purpose in some ways being, you know, acting as bridges to more substantial uh, literature. And I, I think for me, Palinuk definitely is that to where 
I could read it when I was 16, 17 and understand it. And it has some meaningful ideas. It has some like cultural critique, but it's not, you know, it's not sister Carrie or some, you know, big, uh, tome or anything like that, that you got to really wrestle with. Um, so, but I do think it is important that, you know, young people have, to me, it's just important that they, that they have something that is worth in their judgment reading because that's the only way they're going to read anything else. Yeah. And that's a good point. It's kind of like, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast or just in person or maybe after the podcast where I was saying, it's sort of like how, uh, of mice and men is, ends up being like the one Steinbeck book anybody reads and maybe the last novel that they read. Like they read it in high school and then they sort of go off to college, but they always talk very fondly about that book. It's become sort of the stereotype. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah. it it's because it's, it's short, it's fairly straightforward, but it's, you know, it's written well and it has stuff in it that's worth thinking about. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it bridges you over into something greater or maybe you just kind of stop there. Which or is, even just something longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Harry Potter, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Harry Potter is one of those that like could be a bridge, but a lot of people just don't cross it. They get they to the just spend the rest of their lives talking about Harry Potter. Yeah, just living on the bridge, under the bridge. <laughs> they become trolls. So, I guess let's uh, jump right in. Um, and I'm not sure where you really want to start. I've I've got. Uh, so usually when I take notes on a film, it's like pair, like, you know, short paragraphs at a time. I've just got mostly like one word topics, uh, or like one sentence topics that I think, uh, I, that I think I could just say, and we could probably, uh, have a decent discussion. Um, so if we, if we, if we want to do that, we can, if we need to, if it come, if we run out of things to say, I can say one of those words. Okay. Here's a here's a word. Uh waste. Waste. I think waste is a is a big theme in this movie. They keep repeating like infectious human waste. Um and it applies to both people and they talk about um Oh, they're, when they're making soap, they're selling, you know, human waste, you know, selling rich women their own fat asses back, as he says. Um, he says they live in the toxic waste part of town. Edward Norton's character says that. Um, and so it seems relevant to our, to our aims here to talk about. I mean, and, and obviously you're going to have waste as a theme in, in a movie where consumption is, maybe your dominant theme. Yeah. And it, it comes up a lot, this kind of idea of waste, especially in Tyler's kind of uh, project mayhem rhetoric where he's, you know, we're the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. We're the forgotten children of history or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the scene where as he's sort of saying these things into a megaphone, all the project mayhem guys are in the backyard, like spreading fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And he makes the point of like, you are the same uh, you know, biological. Are, he says we're break. all part of the same uh, compost heap. Yeah, which is 
interesting because it takes the concept of waste and turns it into not something that's purely sort of discarded and has no use, but something that it has some sort of other value, right? So compost is technically waste products, but then it's uh, transformed into something that's really creative. And it kind of fits into another thing Tyler says, which is, in you know, we're going to keep saying like, well, you know, Tyler said this because a lot of the movie is just him sort of waxing philosophical. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, a lot of the book, too. Uh, so uh, at one point, he's, oh, God, I wish I wouldn't have had that aside. Now I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> uh, so You're talking about the compost heap and compost being uh, waste, but not necessarily bad waste, kind yeah, of productive waste. Yeah, there we waste. go. So it, there's a scene where he's talking about... Um, self-improvement when they're on the bus and that's when ed norton looks <laughs> yes. at the gucci thing he's like is that what a man looks like and uh self-improvement is masturbation yeah. he's like but now self-destruction self <laughs> uh which is uh interesting because it's that idea that you know tear down what you think you are so you can rebuild something better something truer to who we should be as human beings or whatever which is uh, at the core of the kind of tyler durden fight club uh, ethos in a lot of ways and it's tied pretty closely to this idea of waste or um you know useful garbage <laughs> that kind of thing fertilizer yeah fertilizer yeah. as a bomb fertilizer is something when which you grow something else mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a lot going on there and, and and it's really emphatic like they want you to know or they want you to think about waste um and and when you were talking about the compost heap comment, like you said, it, it takes place in the uh, what's essentially a sort of garden looking area, which I noticed is maybe the most natural setting that in the whole movie, there is almost no nature in this movie. It is weird. It seems very deliberate. Uh, there's, I mean, there in the city. There's some like plants and on the sidewalk and stuff. Uh, I, he eats an apple one time, mm. Tyler Durden. And but other than that, I mean, there's almost no like greenery uh, at all, which I thought was was very interesting and probably serves this the theme of, you know, the the city uh, as a sort of dilapidated pile of waste. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it makes me think of something in the film that, you know, I've, I'd seen this movie quite a few times, but I, I kind of had forgotten about this part, but it's when you're watching the montage of the project mayhem guys doing all their little sabotage projects and they change a, an EPA billboard to say, did you know you could fertilize your lawn with motor oil? Old motor oil, yeah. Which is weird, because why I thought Project Mayhem was anti-capitalist, uh, but here it's sort of like, fuck the environment as well, which is sort of like anarchism taken to a, a pretty far extreme in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, it's like, uh, something else I was going to say about the compost heap comment ties into that. So... It's it's almost th that belief that uh, we're all made of the same organic material. We're all just part of the same rotting, 
compost heap is kind of the natural conclusion of the idea that everything is natural. You know, there's always like somebody who will tell you that, you know, nature and culture are, are part of the same thing, which to my mind is kind of a, a form of naivete because it's like, yeah, obviously everything's part of nature and culture is constructed. But in order to talk about it, like, like if nature is everything, then it's like, it's a, a house divided. You know, there are some ways of behaving and some policies that will destroy their human meaning. Um, so whether or not it's all one thing is kind of irrelevant for human purposes. Um, and, and just the project of humanity upon the earth. Um, so you see, uh, it, to me, it seems a, a little bit uh, like something a 17-year-old would say, that we are, you know, the uh, we're all part of the same compost heap. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. And that's why I think a lot of those slogans and little Durden-isms uh, get kind of misappropriated and misinterpreted and used uh, in a way that's like pretty far away from what uh i think their original meaning would have been um oh yeah and and i mean obviously you learn what a movie you know a filmmaker is kind of endorsing by how the story turns out and this story turns out with the protagonist essentially shooting tyler durden in the head while he shoots himself in the head um and so the, the position of Tyler Durden is not endorsed uh, by the time the credits roll. It is shown to have a place, but a, a major, uh, another word I have written down, and I, I think a major theme of this movie is just compensation. Uh, the movie shows how Tyler Durden, uh, on, a, on a personal sort of individual level, Tyler Durden is a compensation for Edward Norton's character. Uh, he's like a, I've got a, a, a sort of highfalutin phrase written down here. He is a, Tyler is a compensatory manifestation of a psyche under sustained assault by consumerism. And so he invents this sort of alter ego or whatever to compensate for his reality. The same way Fight Club and Project Mayhem are compensations for perceived uh, problems with culture. Um, but you can depict a compensation uh, and a problem without a whole, you know, wholeheartedly endorsing every detail of you know, a character like Tyler Durden, who, like I said, by the end of the movie is not endorsed. Yeah, he is. Once Edward Norton has gotten what he needs from him, he is gone. Yeah, and and it's. I think it's helpful to think back, think about Edward Norton's character, this kind of unnamed protagonist, um, as sorry using these as you were talking about this these uh, compensatory measures, uh, kind of throughout his 
entire existence or at least to the entire time that we're with him in the film because in the beginning it's uh sort of tv shopping ikea furniture that sort mm-hmm. of stuff the kind of rampant consumerism kind of status symbol stuff like when he's talking about his suitcase and he's like my dk and why shoes were in there with all this stuff um and so he, he just kind of transitions from having those compensatory mechanisms to just adopting tyler as one that is far more interesting and i would say in a lot of ways like more kind of correct when it comes to the the consumerism angle but that doesn't mean that that is any healthier any more correct than his ikea addiction was well it's it's almost like tyler is a compensation for his really shitty compensations uh (laughs) like like you said if if uh, you know ikea shopping and uh, condiment collecting is a a compensation for a kind of empty life. Uh, Tyler is like a compensation for those compensations. Uh, yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's why I wrote down compensation. Cause I feel, and, and there's a point where Tyler Durden says, you know, I am everything you're not. Mm-hmm. But, and there's also this idea that um, Ed Norton's character is kind of, I'm just going to keep saying compensating, uh, compensating for, um, kind of the lack of, of human contact. And I mean both in a social sense and in a, like a physical sense, because what originally cures his, uh, his uh, insomnia is going to these groups and sort of hugging Bob and having a good cry and all that sort of stuff. Uh, then he gets to sleep and then it's just sort of like with the Ikea stuff gets replaced with this more extreme version, which is Tyler and like beating the crap out of other men and, being covered in each other's blood and sweat on the floor of a cellar and that sort of stuff, uh, which is where a lot of this kind of homosocial, you know, masculinity readings of fight club come from. And I I think at least in that part, they're kind of, you know, well-founded. I think it's kind of useful to think of it in that kind of way as these sort of like substitute relationships that are passed off as being more meaningful and more true when reality, they're just sort of, cheaper quicker more dangerous versions of actual human connections that you would form with like friends or family yeah i think i think with the i think there's a real emphasis on a sort of return to the body and and at the beginning you see he's very disengaged he's just watching tv and he can't sleep he's he's just sort of this disembodied consumer and and like you said he he meets bob uh and and it gets a little better but then once he starts beating the shit out of himself and other people he he's you know feels (laughs) redeemed or something and and i think i think you're right and i think the sort of obvious answer is the correct one there that it's it's almost like it's just an overcompensation uh, for this lack of human contact, for the lack of uh, kind a of father, of what a father or some sort of you know yeah. masculine influence like that. Sure, sure. Um, and so uh, again, it, it's this overcompensation for uh, a real lack. I agree with what the movie seems to say is lacking with a sort of authentic 
connection to your animal reality. Uh, and, and it's only necessary in a world that is, uh, you know, where you have been disembodied and you're not treated, you're, you're not free to act as a, you know, sort of human animal walking about on the planet, but you're just this sort of cog in a machine. Um, but again, it's an overcompensation and you see the characters uh, who participate in fight club kind of adopting Tyler's overcompensation and blaming this on, uh, in some ways blaming it on women and, and thinking that Marla is like the, the problem. And of yeah. course, by the end we see that that is far from the truth and, and that these guys are just sort of all too ready to adopt this, you know, rigid, ideological uh, they kind of just want somebody to salute uh, somebody to give them orders yeah it's sort of in searching out a, a truer identity they they sort of give up all identity and they become even more kind of uh, I don't know like a particulate <laughs> I guess uh, making up this project mayhem which is in a lot of ways stricter uh, and more limiting personally than whatever their jobs would have been beforehand. But it has all this exciting new stuff built into it and all this sort of social cohesion and all that sort of crap. Uh, so they're, they're atomized in a very different kind of way. And, and uh, back to what you said about the emphasis on the body, um, you know, do you remember the the nineties was full of kind of uh, these kind of uh, trendy exercises that were kind of about that, like Tai Chi, Tai Bo, uh, <laughs> uh, shit like that. And it, I can't really tell if Fight Club is like responding to that, you know, like here's the most extreme version of that, or if it's sort of falling in line with that you know what i'm saying yeah well it does kind of it, it is sort of reminiscent of like hot yoga or <laughs> yeah. stuff like that uh what's the shit what's the crossfit it's probably closer in spirit to crossfit than yeah. any of these other yeah. ones um so i i think there is a sort of connection of these uh social smaller social groups based around some sort of physical exertion that's meant to sort of like create these ties that couldn't exist otherwise that sort of thing uh, ends up functioning more than uh, more like a cult than like a workout group uh, and if i can just put put the marxist hat on for a second and say it seems that that seems uh very convenient to the status quo to have young, strong people uh, concentrating all their time and energy into prefabricated communities uh, that do not exert any work or effort onto destabilizing the status quo, but just but just into their own, all of their energy is expended on themselves. Self-improvement is masturbation. 
Yes. yes. <laughs> Which is one of those, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things about Fight Club that I think is appealing to me, the, the kind of thing you're talking about, where it's creating that same sort of community and kind of rabid commitment but for something which is actually trying to affect some kind of meaningful change. Right. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the case of Project Mayhem, it's through it's sort of increasing levels of violence. And although I will say a lot of it's property destruction, which we, we've talked about how I feel about property destruction. Uh, yeah. Like, if it, depending on the cause, I, I don't really care very much about I, I was super into uh, Operation Latte Thunder in the movie. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, hell yeah do that destroy corporate art roll it into a starbucks who gives a shit like starbucks can't open like 50 new stores um so when it comes to that it's very that's the part those are the parts of the film that are like kind of anarcho left leaning um Mm. but those are also the parts that get sort of left out when people that are more kind of leaning toward the right pick up the film and and only focus on the parts like um, sort of divest yourself from the mainstream, from popular culture, but in the interest of forming yourself into a stronger man with these masculine virtues that, you know, it's the, we don't need one more woman, as, as Tyler says, and we have to, you know, be ourselves and get back to these, you know, foundational sort of essential meanings of being a man. And, th- and that's where it kind of falls apart and becomes more uh, fascist than I think is intended, or at least in the film, I think it's trying to, and in the book too, it's trying to kind of satirize or make those view kind of fascist viewpoints seem, you know, kind of, I don't know, a bridge too far or like destructive in the bad kinds of ways, or that they completely discount interpersonal connection and the human element in a lot of different ways, because, you know, it's only because, the narrator and his like connection to Marla and his not wanting to hurt a bunch of people that sort of lets him snap out of the whole Tyler uh, dilemma. Yeah. Like, like I was saying before we started recording, I, I thought, you know, you hear about people reading this as like a sincere kind of critique of, of the feminine in a way. And it is so far from that. And uh, it's like, it would be like watching Magnolia and just like being totally on board with uh, Tom Cruise's character, Frank T.J. Mackey, who's just spouting preposterous uh, misogynistic bullshit the whole time. Uh, Great but I think there's a, a similar level of irony in both of these movies about uh, – about – uh, how again in in, in uh, Magnolia it is definitely you see you see at the end a Frank T J Mackey's hyper masculinity is a compensation for his you know terrible experience with his parents uh, as a child uh, the same way by the end of the film you see Tyler Durden is a compensation for uh, Edward Norton's uh, emasculated uh existence at the hands of crucially at the hands of turbo consumer capitalism uh not at the hands of women yes and i think that's a and that's and that's why the movie lets the the credit card 
buildings explode at the end, you know, because this is the, this is the real thing that needs to be critiqued. And, 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 uh, Edward Norton and Marla are, are united, you know, and they're holding hands. So clearly the movie is not problematizing her and, and thus women. It is what is allowed to stand is a sort of financial critique. Yeah. Which, uh, I think is important to emphasize for two reasons, because one, it kind of combats against what you're saying, where people talk about the, they, they sort of come at the film within two, like overly masculine or masculinist kind of gaze to, to interpret the film. And also it, in a lot of ways, kind of, which I guess you could probably make a film like this at any point in time and say this, but it kind of foreshadows the financial collapse that would come, you know, in 2008. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see people um, make the connection as they did, you know, in the 2000s between like the ending of this film and 9-11 just because their buildings uh, being demolished. Although not to say that the buildings in 9-11 were demolished. We're not going to go down the like conspiracy rabbit hole. Uh, but Bush did 9-11. <laughs> jet fuel can't melt still beams. But it, it's way more, it's tied way more directly to the, the financial collapse because that's sort of the lost motivation for the, the, the destruction at the end is that they're destroying credit card companies are trying to, you know, reset the world's debt, which would never work in real life. Um, I have to think that there's that it, nothing would come of that financially. Can't um, destroy the cloud. Yeah. So it, it just, it's interesting to think about um, that interpretation. I think for, for those uh, two ways, because in this film, capitalism and the atomized existence of, of these men living under capitalism is the enemy. Like that's the thing that leads to this sort of psychotic break that Ed Norton's character has in creating Tyler Durden. Yeah. And, and you see capitalism as the enemy first through the oppressive monotony of everyone's jobs of, and of white collar jobs in particular, uh, and we, we sort of talked about this. And one of the reasons we wanted to do this film is because there are several films from the late nineties, um, really films up to, uh, up to the, uh, financial for the great recession, um, that show white collar employees as, very dissatisfied, like spiritually dissatisfied, just off the top of my head, Fight Club, American Beauty, uh, Office Space, The Matrix. I think all of those are 1999. Um, yeah. But like there, this was a story we wanted and needed to hear. And, and after, after 2008, these movies did not get made. No. Like when's the last time you saw a movie that was about how oppressive a, a well-paying job is? Uh, it's like you, you're not allowed to hate your job anymore. Um, so it's, it's kind of nice to, I watched it this morning uh, to see a movie that was made in a time where you were still allowed to hate your, hate your job. Um, 
but you you see what my point was you see that the real problem is the capitalist economy through the idea that these guys are joining fight club as like respite from their shit jobs yeah and it's interesting to think about um because one of the movies you mentioned in that list was the matrix and it's interesting to see that fight club and the matrix both be taken up as these kind of like weird alt-right reference points with like red pilling in the case of the matrix um and then with fight club this kind of you know overly masculinist sort of interpretation um because like you're saying in both of those films or at least in the first part of the matrix before uh neo gets liberated or whatever uh the enemy is this kind of monotonous bullshit uh you know oppressively bureaucratic white collar existence Mm -hmm. um so it seems like at that point with these films and with culture in general we were like so close to like we were so close to getting the point of realizing that this whole system is is what's causing us to to feel this way this kind of cultural malaise isn't a problem with us it's a problem with the system we all have to navigate and live within um but but to be a little pessimistic it could be um a luxury you know in the in the high times of the 90s it's like yeah. we're so we feel so confident we even feel confident in you know critiquing what is you know to the rest of the world i mean essentially the 1% people making yeah. you know $300,000 a year and 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 bitching about it yeah so i get in that way if you read it that way that means it makes those films like not as oppositional as they could have been otherwise. Yeah. And, and I'm, I think you can look, there's, there's many different ways to look at it. And I, I prefer your version of man, we were on to something. Uh, we at least could tell this story. Um, and now it's, and now it's almost too dangerous to, to put that out there. Uh, because it's already that same sort of sentiment is alive and well. And like, the Bernie Sanders campaign and all these other places of people realizing that, you know, this, this boot I've been licking doesn't taste as good. <laughs> uh, like I, I should probably think about a different kind of way. Um, whereas maybe that message wasn't as threatening as you're saying in the nineties when everybody wanted the, the pants from the gap commercial with the swing music. Um, it makes me think of like in friends, uh, Chandler has a, I forget what his job is exactly. They mention it once as like a gag. But he works in an office, has a white collar job, and he's sort of far and away the the most financially stable of any of the group, except for maybe Ross, because he's a tenure track for professor at Cornell, even though he never seems to be doing anything. Um, so it was interesting to see that kind of work and it, the way that it was represented, which was we're not going to get into the specifics because it's so boring and so dumb and so you know, uh, bureaucratic and all this shit that we're just going to say he works in an office. He works with computers and technology. Therefore that equals money and financial stability. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like Ed Norton's character before he meets Tyler and all this shit gets blown up. He is the ideal consumer and worker, even though he is having a extreme existential and health crisis the entire time. He's still, Mm -hmm. you know, checking all the boxes and buying all the things and, do, and doing all of his reports. 
Uh, so just to take it back to sitcoms for a second, uh, and, and the recession, look at, look at what happens to sitcoms post recession. We get, um, the office is in its third or fourth season by that time. And then parks and rec gets really big. And these are both shows that, uh, sort of normalize and in some ways glorify, or at least make you feel better about the office, you know, the workplace. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is really, uh, I know, you know how much I love the show workaholics, which is, you know, one of my favorite shows ever. Uh, but you know, I I think it's just a a well-written show in a lot of ways, but also, um, I like it because it to me seems much more, you know, people talk about the sincerity of the office, uh, as you know, relatively speaking, and the sincerity of uh, Parks and Rec compared to, you know, say, fucking Family Guy or something like that. Um, but it to me, Workaholics is so much more honest because it is does not dare to tell you the lie that like your job, your shitty job, is not shitty. Uh, like yeah. there is nothing in that show in workaholics that lies to you about the meaningfulness of these jobs that they take just because they need money, which is if you're working, you know, at a paper company like Dunder Mifflin, you are not there because you want to be. Uh, And so to, to have this show that is like, um, you know, uses these gags and, and is very well written. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, some very funny moments in the office. Uh, but, but it all seems to be these, these, you know, all the silliness and all the funniness of it really kind of redeems these, uh, sincere moments or, or adds weight, I should say, to the more sincere moments. Um, and and so it becomes a, a kind of a reinforcement of of the way things are. Yeah. This this shitty office place that no one wants to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and and workaholics is it's just not that at all. Yeah. To to quote the early twenty first century philosopher Tom DeLong, work sucks. I know. <laughs> And, it's just, and that was the that was the tagline. Work sucks was a tagline for, for office space. Yeah, and, and it does. People, which I, I think we've talked about a little bit on this. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And I just I think for some reason I feel like I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of the most egregious things in any episode of The Office to me was um, the episode where the uh, workers in the warehouse decide that they're going to start a union. And then, like, Jan, you know, Jan lives in Goldfire. Jane Levinson finds out about it. And she comes down and kind of, she tells Michael to go fix it. And when he can't do it, she comes down and sort of reads them the riot act of, like, if you join a union, uh, you'll be fired. And, you know, you could sue us, but it'll never work out for you. And you'll you'll be bankrupted and legal fees and all this sort of stuff. And then all the warehouse guys are like, okay, yeah, that would suck. Let's not do that. And it's sort of not... That's how it's resolved is that they, mm-hmm. they start to do it. And then the boss comes and says, you're all fucked if you do this. And they're like, okay, never mind." 
and, and I, that kind it, of stuff it seems, is all over it the seems show. like it's just trying to reflect reality I, I honestly i think that's how most people think um, yeah probably. and that is a realistic depiction of how something like that might go um but to do it in this funny way just reinforces that as normal so yeah um whereas in workaholics they give such few shits about that about the job that that's never a problem right that's not where the 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 drama of that show quote unquote comes from um, yeah the, when the one time they strike <laughs> because they want a, a day off for half christmas uh <laughs> they they end up on top of the conference table uh chanting in unison suck our dicks <laughs> which i mean to be honest that's how every strike should go pay us more <laughs> suck our dicks yes. oh god um here's here's something i wanted to bring up the the whole mother theme of this podcast or expulsion of mothers i thought it was really interesting given our previous conversation about uh you know how some people are interpreting some people interpret this movie um uh, in a sort of negative with a negative view of women and how bob has quote bitch tits yeah and and so he's sort of this artificial and it, you know it's uh, edward norton's character can't cry until bob sort of embraces him and shoves his head down into his bitch tits and so it's sort of this semblance of like motherly affection you know it's like the closest thing he has to this motherly affection and that's what allows him this catharsis yeah but it's but it's this sad you know artificial version yeah and so much of the movie is about um sort of i don't know the short way of putting it is about uh about nuts <laughs> testicles uh, specifically, you know, Bob has lost both of his to cancer because he was a bodybuilder on all sorts of steroids. And, you know, the narrator goes to that, starts out going to the support group for men with testicular cancer. Um, there's a whole like back and forth between the narrator, between Ed Norton and, and, uh, and, uh, Marla about, um, you know, her not having balls or, you know, you still got to keep your balls. So I should get to go to the group. Um, and then, you know, once project mayhem is up and running, there's a lot of stuff of them trying to like castrate men who are, uh, subversive to their cause. Yeah. There's a couple references without, without naming names, uh, to Lorena Bobbitt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, and it's weird that, that all of those seemingly kind of misogynistic sort of, uh, ideas come from Tyler, right? Which we know is ed norton's sort of manifestation um so it's interesting that sort of like lurking beneath the surface is all of this kind of animus toward women um yeah and and bob's sort of you know seen as less of a man right he talks about how he's lost everything he was bankrupted and which they don't really talk about why he was bankrupted maybe it's like a medical bill thing that would make the most sense to me Uh, but you know bankrupted his wife left him and his kids won't return his calls Mm -hmm. because he 
why like because it's his fault that he got testicular cancer because he was on steroids i guess but even that's really fucking cruel i think i think the implication is that he's um like he doesn't want to like they're embarrassed of him yeah and and that's kind that's how i got or that's what i got too so it just doesn't i don't get that you know well Uh, like physically yeah yeah yeah. but even then it's like how fucking cruel are you that you're like your (laughs) father goes through this especially especially the phone call thing it's like you don't even have to like you don't have to see him him. yeah yeah. Um, call your dad meatloaf babies yeah (laughs) little meatlets and so uh you know he gets sort of uh, reborn or like remasculinized, gets his balls back by going to Fight Club and beating other men. You know, it's it's weird. I just just now made this connection. The uh, castration is a major uh, recurring theme in the Big Lebowski, which was what ninety eight, ninety seven. Yeah, uh, just a, a year or two before. Uh, you know. The, the nihilists are always screaming they'll cut off your Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has the dream has with the, the guy running with the scissors, scissors and everything. Um, and and Maud, uh, Julianne Moore, is supposed to be this kind of uh, emasculating, uh, you know, f- radical feminist character. Uh, so I don't, I don't. I don't know what was happening in the late nineties where, where this, uh, this kept recurring this theme. Well, you know, it's the feminazis, right? That's what, yeah, <laughs> that that's who's doing it. That's who's doing it is, uh, which it's interesting that uh, kind of going back to what we were saying before is, you know, and I'm by no means the first person to make this connection, but everyone took the messages from these movies, which was, capitalism and the way that you're being atomized and turned into this nameless cog in this corporate machine of consumption that's the enemy Um, but instead it gets shifted and bastardized and becomes you know the uh, political correctness is your enemy you know uh, feminism is your is the enemy that sort of stuff Um, and and so it, it replaces what we should actually be sort of coming together and fighting against with these other things that only serve you know the the already dominant order only serves capitalism only serves neoliberalism all that sort of stuff and an, another point i wanted to make about marla is that she is uh maybe even more you know in the film definitely more oppressed by the system the capitalist system than these guys in fight club yeah, you know who have white collar jobs marla is stealing Meals on wheels yeah. because she's so poor and stealing clothes and selling them. Uh, and so I, I, how you uh, how you interpret this movie to mean she is somehow part of this ideological problem, I, I just don't understand. And there's a line that Marla has that is like maybe her biggest like comedic line is when she says, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Right, which is like it, the it's, look, the look on Brad Pitt's face when she says that is amazing. And he like shudders when he's retelling it, right? But but again, that's repre- or that's sort of showing us how you know, as a woman living in America, living on planet Earth, um, she's been dealing with a lot of issues of you know, 
sort of over hyper sexualization since yeah. she was in grade school, right? I doubt that she was in grade school like hitting on adult men or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, because she's so sort of, you know, the manic pixie dream girl trope. It's that, yeah. except I, I forget. I, I wish I would have wrote down where I got. I think I got this from the the podcast struggle session. They did a an episode about this, but called her a, a manic goth dream girl because she's serving the same kind of purpose um, in, in some ways in the film. Um, but at the same time, like you said, she's has all this like weird flighty behavior, but it's all representative of like mental illness, probably caused by a lot of trauma, poverty. That's probably a, a byproduct of this, you know, these mental issues, all this sort of stuff piling up. But instead it's just like, Oh, the, the woman, the Yoko Ono coming to break up our, right. our brohood. But I mean, she's, she's in the same position as Edward Norton. She's going under false pretenses to these meetings mm-hmm. too. But he you know, she's, she's it, literally right? in the same sort of existential conundrum. Yeah. Spiritual problem. Except hers is probably like, I don't want to say it's more earned, but he has like this, you know, perfect little consumerist experience. Whereas she is, you know, kind of living in the gutter, stealing meals on wheels. But right. he's the one that's like, I need this. You're trespassing, that sort of thing. And and perhaps one of the most damning uh, lines of the to the sort of anti-feminist reading is a line I'd never noticed before. Uh, when Edward Norton is trying to put her put Marla on a bus to keep her safe uh, before the buildings explode at the end, uh, she says. She's about to get on the bus and she says, why are you doing this? And Edward Norton says, I don't know. They think you're some kind of threat. Which, which again, remember when uh, there, there comes a point where Edward Norton sort of snaps out of his, you know, entrenchment in Project Mayhem and Fight Club. Uh, and it's after that's happened that he, that this conversation happens where he is, uh, making a distinction between himself and Project Mayhem, so there's no way to misinterpret that as as anything but him critiquing the guys in Fight Club uh, as mistakenly uh, blaming her or seeing her as a threat. Yeah, and why is she a threat? I don't know. <laughs> like, what what would be the other than having like the corrupting influence of the female uh, coming in. I I think that what we're supposed to think is that the uh, hyper consumerism um, is a mask is actually emasculating. It's like inherently feminine, kind of like the, the Gucci ad that they see of the like really kind of like fit dude in the speedo underwear. And that's right. when Ed Norton's like, is that what a man looks like? Is that what a real man looks like? <laughs> yeah. Which is like yeah. the, the most shithead line that I'd forgotten about until I was rewatching it. Um, this idea of like, but which is weird because a lot of it, a lot of the film is kind of concerned with these sort, sort of a surface level kind of superficial things because the one of the, another well-known line from the film is when Ed Norton's talking about fight club. He says something like when they got the fight club, they'd look like, you know, a tub of cookie dough or whatever. And then after, after 
a couple weeks. They'd look like they were carved out of wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when they're recruiting people to come and live in the house, Tyler says, you know, if they're if they're too fat, tell them they're too fat. If they're too old, tell them they're too old, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is yeah, that sort of... You see, you see examples of their hypocrisy. Yeah, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Tyler, you know, for his anti-consumerism, you know, he has product in his hair. And he wears these sunglasses, you know, and he and he steals these, this nice car. And and one thing I noticed that I'd never thought about before too is there is the critique of consumerism doesn't at least you know to the Fight Club guys doesn't seem to extend to uh, beer and tobacco companies. Yeah, which is which is two of the most you know rampant forms of consumerism mm-hmm. and most destructive. But that's okay though because it's manly. Right, exactly. And it's pleasurable. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of contradictions going on. Um, you know, not not really surprising to find them there. Um, but there they are. <sighs> Here, let me, here's another word. Uh, safety. Oh, like the airplane scene. Yeah, I, and and uh, Edward Norton's character's whole job is this, uh, uh, you know, working for a major car company, assessing accidents, and and the airplane scene where he says the illusion of safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like part of the thesis of you know the the, the project of Fight Club is to compensate for this kind of sanitized seemingly safe world with real violence and uh, or, you know uh, living a little more dangerously uh, which of course is like we said before an overcompensation uh, and and gets <laughs> well out of hand yeah safety and it's kind of uh, being a member of May, uh, Project Mayhem or Fight Club is sort of about dispensing with safety as we normally think of it. Uh, mm. I'm thinking of the house on the Paper Street house when uh, there's a lot of detail put into describing how it's falling apart and how when it rains they have to turn off the electricity uh, and you get the scene of them in the basement and Brad Pitt standing in like a foot of water as he's flipping the, the breakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it seems to be like safety is inherently you know part of this capitalist system or the illusion of safety which as we talked about is sort of feminized and emasculating so therefore to do the unsafe thing is the heroic masculine thing to do like driving the car on the wrong side of the road and that sort of stuff i've always loved the line though after the after the car accident where he says you you just had a near life experience yeah, and that's that's something another recurring theme in the whole movie is this idea of of being truly alive. There's that scene. There's the scene when they hold the uh, guy at gunpoint, and Tyler yeah. says, "Well, if if you're not on your way to being a vet in six weeks, I'm going to kill you or something like that." And then uh, the another kind of famous scene when he puts the lie on that, Ed Norton's hand. That, that's honestly maybe my favorite scene in the film. Um, and I think kind of encapsulates um, a, a lot of of the themes in the movie. 
yeah. where he's where he's telling him, it, you know, be here in the moment. This is actually happening because you see Edward Norton kind of trying to resort to these. That was something we haven't really talked about is is with the support groups comes this kind of new age lingo in a yeah. lot of ways the movie functions as as a critique of new age as a you know as an effective counterculture mm-hmm. um, and you see him when Tyler you know puts the chemical burn on his hand trying to you know reverting to these old ways of retreating from pain and and Tyler's not offering a way of escaping the pain he's actually inviting you to embrace the pain which is uh, again this is at the point where where Tyler has not gone overboard and, and project mayhem has not begun and and Edward Norton is still his character still um is still catching up is still learning the things he needs to learn uh, before it goes off, off the rails. And I, I, I just, I really like that scene. Um, and I, I do think that is a, a very particular, but a very astute thing to critique the, the, uh, instinct to deal with things by retreat and, and the idea that pain is inherently bad. Um, was that Jonathan Franzen uh, uh, article we read with her? It's called "Pain Won't Kill You." Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I sort of philosophically really uh, like that scene. Yeah, and the the whole thing of you can go with your in, your you know instinct out of fear in this moment and go and put your hand under the sink, but that's just going to make it worse. Or you can use this other thing, use this vinegar that to to neutralize it. Um, of, of again, just sort of being mindful about this pain and this experience that, like you said, most people block out completely, right. And confronting those things head on, which again, yeah, is, and, not- and even, and even to, to make it worse, they use like the language of like mindfulness, yeah. which is supposed to be, you know, in its, in its sort of original pure form supposed to be about ex- allowing yourself to experience uh, your complete reality of like, like bodily reality uh, rather than, you know, psychologically disengaging yourself. But, but, but now mindfulness has become its own little cave that people retreat to. Uh, and, and it, and it just becomes another example of these sort of new age things when, when it's actually was intended to be a, a kind of counterweight to that tendency. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we need to linger very long on the, the fact that it's a, it's a kiss that the burn, it takes the form of a kiss, right? The lips, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, all sorts of like obvious sort of homosocial kind of uh, even seemingly erotic kind of tinge to that, especially when you have Ed Norton and, uh, and Brad Pitt's characters, like as they're fighting kind of like intensely watching each other fight these other men and all this sort of stuff. There's a, a, a pretty interesting kind of bond going on there that, that goes beyond just like nice fight, bro. It's a, it's sort of like 
kind of like we were talking about the or like i've mentioned with the uh assassination assassination of jesse james just like do you want to be with me or do you want to be me that sort of thing that kind of line of that it's uh it's writing the whole time which again is sort of made weird by ed norton and brad pitt being the same person in the film right um yeah, it's, 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 uh, there is some sort of latent eroticism going on. It reminds me of that scene in, uh, which is, this is a movie we should, we should do sometime. Uh, Ken Russell's Women in Love, where, uh, Alan Bates and Oliver Reed, uh, are just completely naked wrestling on a bear rug in front of a fire. And it's supposed to be like really sporty, uh, but it's like, super you know it's shot in a way to like sort of make it seem like a sex scene yeah Um, but it's a similar kind of uh or not a totally disparate theme of the i'm trying i guess his name birkin is the character's name who wants to you know sort of refuses to accept uh the limits or the limiting idea of what a, a homosocial relationship can be in that culture. And, uh, and so there's, there's some, uh, crossover, I think there with, with fight club, but in, in, in distant ways. Yeah. Cause in fight club, it's sort of coming out of, um, it's a bunch of men who have been, kind of symbolically castrated, I guess you could say by, uh, by their life under, under capitalism. And so they sort of have their wires crossed about what a, you know, healthy, productive, emotional relationship is. So, so, you know, it takes the form of fighting each other and all that sort of stuff. Um, participating together in this project to create, you know, these, uh, or to carry out these acts of destruction and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's not really, in a lot of ways, it's not as transgressive as it's presented as being by Tyler Durden. Um, it's really at its core, not much different from like joining a rec basketball league or something. (laughs) Uh, but it just has all the added stuff and the, the violence and the sort of catharsis, that word I just fucked up saying catharsis through catharsis catharsis uh, through violence and uh, and uh, in this sort of embodied thing which again you can get from a sport but because this is so you know violent and intense and there's so much contact and, and pain and, and those kinds of things um, I guess it's meant to be sort of more a more powerful form of that that kind of well yeah and sports sports are self-contained and I think Fight Club starts that way, but then it branches off and and it becomes about affecting social change as opposed to, you know, dealing with uh, your life. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that how much the fights in the film remind me of like UFC fights now, especially like the, the idea that like these are two men that came together and sort of gave everything that they have in this fight. And then afterwards there's this like feeling of mutual respect and, and camaraderie and all that sort of stuff. 
uh, it's, it's pretty similar <laughs> to the way you'll see UFC fighters kind of after the fight, like hug each other because they spent months like training and focusing on the other person completely. And then you have this big release in the form of this violent exhibition. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting that UFC was not, you know, it was nowhere near as popular in 1999. I don't remember seeing UFC until maybe, uh, I was in high school. Uh, but it is, it does say something for the film and, and the book. I think that, that this is a real, you know, whatever it's tapping into is a real, uh, issue that, that people experience. And I, I do think there may be some truth to the, you know, kind of one of the premises of the, of the plot, which is that things are arranged. Culture is arranged in such a way that we, everyone is made to seek these sort of over the top, you know, overcompensations for their, uh, atomized and isolated, Lives because you, you see uh, you see uh, Edward Norton's apartment. So I think it's called Pearson Towers. It says a place to be somebody, which is clearly a you know a compensation for the reality, which is as he calls it a filing cabinet. Yeah. Um, which I thought was, it was very interesting that there's a a couple examples of those types of things where the metaphor he uses is like an office. Rep, like a, a reference to something in the in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's uh, the copy of a copy of a copy. A copy of a copy. But he also says, uh, Tyler Durden says, "Fucker setting up franchises." Oh, when yeah. he when he tells him about his dad leaving and, and starting a new family. Uh, so you you see how the uh, like domestic life has come to mirror, uh, like capitalist development uh, in in those uh, metaphors yeah I can't I can't remember how I got started on that now <laughs> doesn't matter so re-watching this movie now um, you know coming you know 20 years after the fact which is kind of interesting we did like almost a 20 year 20th anniversary viewing of it oh yeah wow um but it, it's actually, if you're looking in the right places and sort of through the right frame of mind, it's got a lot of, I think, useful things to say that still hold true about life under capitalism and all that sort of stuff. You just have to be careful with the extent to which you buy into uh, Tyler Durden's um, kind of uh, his uh, his mojo there. Because that's the thing is he's, he's placed within the plot to be this charismatic leader right that is not he's not the good guy right um there's not really a good guy in the film if you think about it um but tyler is there to be sort of the evil ultimately evil id that you have sort of lurking within you and if you gave in to all of these impulses not just the ones that have this sort of potent philosophical ideological potential but all of them this is kind of what would come out of that yeah and and to go back to the hypocritical things we've noticed about tyler durden uh, if there's a 
a literary prototype for the relationship between uh, Edward Norton and Tyler Durden. It's and this is in the uh, introduction that Chuck Palahniuk wrote and, and something Jensi picked up on when we watched it. Uh, the, the prototype for it is uh, the great Gatsby and Nick Carraway's relationship to Gatsby. Uh, and, and of course, Gatsby is revealed to be a giant uh, fraud. Um, so uh, I, I think that's a, a, a just another uh, piece of evidence against any sort of one hundred percent sincere understanding of of Tyler's place in the in the themes of this movie. That kind of like I like that because it's it's a sort of that's a pretty common trope in American literature. I think specifically um, where you have a narrator who is kind of a lesser man who is telling you the story of a greater man. And Great mm-hmm. Gatsby is kind of the most famous one, and then. I mean, Ahab and Ishmael and Moby Dick and Quentin I just, Compson. I just finished that. And then uh, Quentin Compson and Thomas Suppin and Absalom Absalom. And they, you know, it's kind of countless examples of this kind of thing. And this is another one, but again, complicated by the fact that Tyler Durden is the narrator. The narrator is Tyler Durden. So it's almost as if um, in the world that we live in now and that they're living in in 1999, there, there are no, and this is kind of like, you have to be careful not to like sound like Tyler Durden when, I, when you say this, uh, but there are none of those great men whose stories you can tell. So he has to create one. He mm-hmm. has to sort of give birth to one that he thinks is a great man. Right. He says, this right. is what an out, al- you know, true alpha male would be. Well, and it's just according to his particular form of oppression, this is what a great man would be because like we've been saying, it is a compensation for that oppression. Yeah. Tyler is a compensation. And so if, if your world is dominated by consumerism and, and is completely anti self-reliant, you're going to, what will count as great is someone, you know, spitting out maxim or act, Maxims, yeah, sure. that's a great, great magazine uh, <laughs> <laughs> about uh, you know shitting on consumerism uh, and and promoting self reliance. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought of that that kind of interpretation, which is surprising because I always. I always sort of make that connection of those the the way that a lot of these great American novels like Fight Club <laughs> have been structured. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Jensi, we watched this not you know maybe last year or something. She had never seen Fight Club, and she was like, "I'm getting a really sort of Nick Carraway, Gatsby vibe," and I was like, "Yeah, that sounds really familiar." And she was like, you know, we were really excited about it because we thought it was this original observation. And I was like, maybe I've heard that before. And I, like I said, I found it in the Palinuk introduction to the to Fight Club. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, not an original idea. Like, oh, you thought you had an original idea? Yeah. Um, 
not quite. So I want to talk about the the difference and the differences between the the endings because what I remember from the novel is that in in that ending, you have the narrator who has survived this kind of final demolition of Project Mayhem, and he's now in a hospital, and he's injured and he's recovering, and it ends with uh, the nurse coming in and like helping him do whatever, and then like giving him like a wink or like saying something about like project mayhem lives on or something like that. And you get the sense that the narrator is now helpless to do anything to stop this thing that he has set into motion. And it's going to lead to greater catastrophes and that sort of stuff. And if Um, I'm not mistaken, it's described in language meant to approximate the afterlife, like heaven. Um, And so the, the, the whiteness of the walls of this asylum are, described in a way like you know white the way the clouds of heaven would be white and he the doctor who's giving him medicine or dispensing the medicine or something is sort of this god figure because if i'm not mistaken one of the maybe the last line of the book is you can't tell god anything because he's like trying to convince the doctor to let him out or something and he says you can't tell god anything yeah. So, you know, there's some, uh, you know, there's that stuff going on, which is very different from what happens at the end of the film, uh, which I have to say, like, as far as changes for film adaptations go, I think that one's okay because that ending shot is still really cool. You're talking <laughs> 20, about the dick? Later. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's a great dig. Uh, but the, the scene of, you know, the narrator and Marla holding hands is all the, the, buildings fall down that kind of thing it's it's very you know bringing back the dick as a reference to the what we learned about tyler earlier on um all that stuff is really great but it's kind of it leaves you at a less definite place i guess than maybe the the novel does even the not even though in the novel it's kind of cloudy as to what exactly would happen next um which, you know, I'm not saying you have to tie everything up in a nice little bow, but in the film, it's definitely a more cinematic ending. And it's it's sort of like t- suggesting that, oh, this plan happened anyway, like it's out of your hands, but just for this sort of contained, uh, this contained event. Whereas in the novel, it's kind of more nefarious as it's presented like, Ooh, what's going to happen next? What are they going to do? And we should also remember that uh, Edward Norton's character has made a full confession before this happens. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know if it's going to be smooth sailing for him. Yeah. And, and it's worth mentioning, although I have not read them, that there are a couple of sequels to Fight Club, graphic novel sequels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't read them either. That, yeah. So I'm, I, it's one of those things I'm like, or maybe it's a prequel. I don't know, but I'm just not going to bother with those. I'm not interested. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just the the change to the ending, I think, is it was done for cinematic reasons, and it makes a lot of sense. I have to say, like this was, uh, this is one of those like big Fincher movies, uh, and it has some of those trademarks that we see, like the uh, the scene when he shoots himself, and all the like CGI that went into that, um, yeah, that sort of stuff. So I, I like Fincher, like like I mentioned earlier, he hasn't made anything in, in a little while. Yeah, I guess he was I, – I never watched House of Cards, but I guess he was involved in that to some degree. 
I don't know if he directed or produced or what. Uh, maybe the first season he directed. Uh, but like the social network. Uh, uh, social network. A lot of people. Zo- Zodiac, Zodiac is maybe, when it's all said and done, the best movie he's made. Uh, although I, I love Seven, I love The Game, uh, and I love Fight Club. Yeah. So he did a, you know, a lot of, he was sort of the go-to guy for the, the dark kind of brooding movie there for a while. Yeah. Like dark, and and dark, like literally, literally dark. <laughs> like this fight club is a very dim movie. Just grimy kind of emphasizes all the like muck and shit yeah. that's everywhere. Um, but it's interesting. He, as did, a, didn't he do panic room as well? I'm pretty sure yeah. he did. Yeah. Which is okay. It was fine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's Fight Club is a sort of at the end of the '90s, this kind of final generation X sort of kickback against consumerism. Um, that you know, whether or not that it had any sort of effect, it's definitely become deeply entrenched in sort of the zeitgeist of that time of the early two thousands, late nineties. And as we were talking about bridge text, it's definitely kind of a bridge text between the nineties and the two thousands, I would say. Yeah. And and we were talking earlier about the recession as kind of being a, an end cap uh, or a bookend, but uh, nine 11 certainly had its impact as well Mm -hmm. on, you know, you, uh, the, the ending of fight club would have been different had it been made in, 2002 it might not have been made until a couple years later or something yeah yeah uh, there were several movies that were delayed because of 9 11 yeah and so it, it, does, it does take on that sort of extra layer of meaning the kind of patina of meaning that wouldn't have been there had 9 11 not happened uh, but you know there it is 20 years on it's kind of the life that it's taken on and it's become this thing that is still kind of around still kind of relevant in a lot of ways yeah it gets quoted all the time it yeah even lines and, and unfortunately like most of it's you know usually when it gets quoted it's uh the first rule of something is this the second rule of something is that which is like yeah like it's not that funny it's really not and there's also like i would knew a lot of people that would do the uh, i'm fucking lou who the fuck are you that's a pretty specific (laughs) quote (laughs) yeah um but yeah it was one of those movies definitely that people would quote a lot um specifically like little durdenisms that people thought were like quoting him like he's nietzsche or some shit yeah we were we were before we started recording you know talking about that alt-right article where that dude was quoting like the middle children of history speech um, you know, to, to make some point about God only knows what he was getting at. He's one of the, maybe he's sort of in, informing the subtext here that we were uh, getting out of these misinterpretations uh, of, uh, uh, or, or tone deaf interpretations or irony deaf uh, interpretations. Yeah, which is not not where you want to be when you're uh, talking about Fight Club. I, I think there's so much there. And I, I've heard people talk about how is kind of the left has in a lot of ways failed to mobilize 
angsty, angry young white men, whereas the far right has done that <laughs> and sort of through things like, you know, this this tone deaf interpretation of Fight Club and the Matrix and stuff like that um, to try to harness that kind of young white male anger that is going to be there 100 percent of the time anyway, because you can't. That's just the way human males are. Yeah. Um, which sounds essentialist to say, but it, you know, all teenagers are just pissed off a lot of the time. Um, and so they just taking that and redirecting it toward these, these evil ends, right. Is instead of toward, you know, building solidarity in more productive ways or whatever it may be. Yeah, man, if I were, had been thinking about it, I would have brought, uh, Paul Goodman's growing up absurd, which is really a book about, about what you're talking about, about providing good projects, meaningful work for young men and, and specifically teenagers. And he, Paul, I think you'd like Paul Goodman. I, th- I think we've talked about him before and you said you hadn't, hadn't read him. Uh, he's, uh, uh, got some very interesting radical ideas on education. Um, but growing up absurd is a, a must read, uh, especially if you're interested in, in that sort of idea of like, what should, you know, what should the options be for angsty young men? Yeah. Uh, and basically that book is a critique of the absurdity of the options, uh, at the time, I guess he wrote it in the late fifties, early sixties, maybe. So speaking of angsty young men, I want to do something now that I, uh, kind of shifting away from the film. Cause I think we've about, uh, you know, about tapped out on, on fight club. <laughs> tapped out. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but well, um, so, and I mentioned to you before we started recording that I wanted to do, to do this thing. I'm kind of borrowing from other podcasts. I have a short news story that I want to read to Will and, and get his reaction to. And uh, it comes from our good pals over at Fox News. <laughs> Friends of the pod, Fox News. And it's um, six days ago. There, there are bigger news stories, but this one I think is especially interesting for the, the scope of the podcast. And the title is Harvard student blasts climate change protesters for delaying Harvard Yale football game with, quote, empty activism. Did you hear about this thing? I, I think I heard a brief mention of this uh, on Democracy Now, mm. but I, I don't know the details of it. Okay, so so here the story is real short, so I'll just kind of breathe through it. More than 150 climate change protesters stormed the field at the Harvard-Yale football game Saturday, causing a 40-minute delay. Oh, my God, 40 minutes. Uh, the protesters, two dozen of whom were arrested, demanded that both Ivy League schools stop funding fossil fuel companies and act Christopher Colby, a Harvard student and campus reform correspondent, blasted as, quote, empty activism and par for the course on a liberal campus. So I want you to imagine what you think a white dude named Christopher Colby that goes to Harvard looks like. He looks exactly like that. (laughs) And the fact that he's calling Harvard a liberal campus is laughable. Um, You know, all the Republican politicians go there, too. Um, these protests, and here's, here's a quote, these protesters decided that their version of empty activism for this weekend was going to go sit in the middle of the field during the game, right in the middle of it, wasting everybody's time. Colby told Fox and friends Monday, I have to say, I have to say most people were pretty nonplussed. The protest was pretty poorly planned. 
However, Caleb Schwartz, a Harvard student and spokesman for the group Divest Harvard, told ESPN the protest was the result of months of coordination. This is a very deliberate choice of targeting this specific game to get our action out there, Schwartz told ESPN's Paul Kicks. Colby argued that protesters' demands would hurt the students who need financial aid the most, including many of protesters themselves, of the protesters themselves, sorry, typo, because they wouldn't have funding to go to school anymore, end quote. Quote, most of my friends were just irked, very annoyed that they got their time taken away from them, but our biggest takeaway for the most part was just that this was another empty political activist thing liberals tend to do on big days, Colby said. Quote, it's really quite annoying. I don't think the protest accomplished much, end quote. Harvard lost 40 to 50 to 43 in double overtime, but Colby said the, quote, divest, divest protest didn't help the historically long game. Yale referred to the protest as regrettable in a statement, saying the Ivy League, quote, stands firmly for the right to free expression, end quote, but took issue with how the protesters went about it, adding, we do not allow disruption of university events. The protest received support from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who tweeted, quote, activism disrupts the present to change the future, but many online mocked the protest, saying it could only happen at an Ivy League game. The incident was just the latest in a series of climate demonstrations that erupted in the fall. Protesters held sit-ins in the offices of both House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, demanding more aggressive action on climate change. Actress Jane Fonda has participated in several protests, including one on Friday that resulted in multiple arrests. Climate change has gained more attention as 2020 Democrats Democrats candidates should be Democratic candidates shown a spotlight on the issue and President Trump filed paperwork to officially withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. The end. Yeah, notice how little of that article is about whether or not Harvard and Yale are going to divest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this is, I mean, fuck Fox News, uh, but this is not a problem specific to Fox News, and and not a problem. Uh, I, I think it's a problem that is very much a part of of the times that we live in which is the problem of making everything about, I don't know how this is going to sound, but in some ways it's about identity. Was it okay for these people to do that? Was it, were were people nonplussed by this act? Uh, Did this disrupt people's, Lives. Was their experience of the football game not okay? Um, who fucking cares? The the activists are trying to to call attention to an issue beyond that, um, and that is that is exactly why they did it this way. What what just floors me is is this guy. Uh, Christopher uh, Colby. Chris Colby would probably have uh, praised a protest had these people gone to the uh, city and obtained a permit and politely shouted in the street. That, in my opinion, is a waste of time. When you, I mean, the idea of permits for a protest is is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And it is just accepted. Uh, you should not, it, to me, if you're going to protest something, you should go down 
to the uh, to wherever you have to go to get a permit for a protest and tell them that you're going to protest and not get a permit. What's irking this guy is that they actually disrupted something. And the way uh, the way the, the sort of system has adapted to protest and and defanged it. And so when someone actually does something that is disruptive and and therefore is an actual protest, people are pissed off. And that's exactly what a protest is supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that they have Yale's response, which was to call it regrettable and say that we, we fully endorse their freedom of expression, but you're not allowed to disrupt university events. <laughs> it's like, well, then that's not freedom of expression. Uh, it's the same people that will bitch and moan and kick and scream and him and haul all day long about how college campuses are censoring the right and all this sort of shit. And in this case, they are literally censoring climate protests saying you, you, you can't do this at university events. And they're like, yeah, good. How it, dare they interrupt my football game? It's to me, it's even worse than censoring. It's like trivializing it because to me, that's worse because at least if you were being censored, if you could get the word out, people might pay attention. We've created this system where you can say whatever the fuck you want, whenever the fuck you want, uh, and, and therefore everything you say is meaningless. Uh, and that's a sort of weird uh, um, uh, shadow of free speech. Uh, and is that yeah you can say whatever you want but that that in some ways that trivializes it um, yeah so I, I i like i like i said i have some reservations about the effectiveness of you know making signs and 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 shouting slogans um and and most of the time i think it's people I won't say most of the time, many, many times it's about people feeling that not unlike fight club feeling that they belong to this group, uh, feeling like they are doing something about it. But it, if it's about individuals feeling a certain way, it's probably not going to do much. Uh, so, so I support a, a protest that is illegal and actually disruptive yeah like go out on the freeway and shut that shit down <laughs> yes shut down the harvard yale football game because fuck them like it's a football and, uh, game. they're like they're like a uh, disrupted the football game like that it was annoying the planet like, yeah. is being disrupted they're like oh this is so annoying what do they have to do it's, it's unbelievable and also i love all the um the way that the references in this to things that they know we're gonna like incite their audience so they have the uh the AOC tweet because you know how ever all these old men on the right have this like weird oh, like she, she just gets their old fuzzy peaches a prickle don't they they, they call she... her AOC yeah and they and they're, they're so like horny for her but mad at her at the same time <laughs> like they don't know how to feel about it um and also that they mention uh see where is it Jane Fonda which yeah. is has to be like a, a callback to all the old the old men reading it about uh, the Vietnam War and Jane Fonda being involved in Vietnam. 
It's these women protests. trying to take away their rights, man. A bunch of moralist singers out there. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, this, this article is very like, you can tell that they're trying to be like, they're trying to be sly about how it's written, but it's really not at all. Um, yeah. But I just thought it was interesting to show you that and then show you this, uh, this uh, Harvard student uh, who's majoring in, in bootlicking, uh, talk, <laughs> talking about how it just, it wasn't cool. It was, it was empty. It was a hollow protest. Um, even though he works for campus reform, which has to be like one of these turning point USA type, you know, shithead fan clubs. Any sanctioned group. I mean, it's just categorically, uh, politically empty because it is the, the sanctioning body that needs to be, uh, reformed. Yeah. And the fact that Harvard and Yale are not going to do anything about divestment. Um, right. And, so. you know, it's just crazy that that's not even part of this conversation. No. And that's exactly how it's they the want Kaepernick it to go. effect all over again. Like you lose sight of what it's actually about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that with you because I thought it was interesting and aligned with uh, a lot of our viewpoints on the show. Yeah, that's yeah, a shit show. Yeah. So. That was Fight Club and also the, the little detour into that article. Next week, we're going to be uh, doing something a little bit different, a more recent film, Embrace of the Serpent from 2015, which has a Spanish language title because it's a Colombian uh, made film, but I don't know that title and my Spanish isn't very good, so I'm not going to say it. Uh, directed by uh, Ciro Guerra, who, uh, as I mentioned, is a Colombian director. Uh, looks like a really intriguing film, right? It's a... I'm not super familiar with what exactly it's about or what's going on, but I watched the trailer and I thought this is something we should do. Looks like uh, El Abrazo de la Serpiente. There we go. So that's what we'll be doing uh, next week. It's sub. I think it's well, no, I guess Ocha's sort of subtitled, but I think this will be the full, the first like fully subtitled film that we're doing. Cool. So that's a first. Oh yeah, best best foreign language film nominee. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking. I for one, am looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be. It's going to be more uh, art house than Fight Club, <laughs> I think. So that's what I don't we'll be see doing. How that's possible. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing uh, next week. Worker bees can leave. Even drones can fly away. The queen is their slave.